Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Jason Merrick. He's the Director of Addiction Services at Kenton County Detention Center in Covington, Kentucky. Jason, welcome. Thank you, Greg. It's okay. a pleasure. Jason was interviewed as uh, by Sam Kenyonis when he was writing his best-selling book, Dreamland. And as part of our series here called After Dreamland. So we're back here today to visit with Jason and talk a little bit about his experience with Sam and learn about everything that they're doing here at their correctional facility um, and a unique program that they have that Jason leads for um, addiction services and addressing that. Kentucky has long been one of the leaders in our nation in addressing substance abuse through the Department of Corrections, and they're doing some special things here that is um, kind of documented very well in your latest uh, report for fiscal year 2015. So I want to talk about that, but let's start at the beginning. How has the opioid epidemic impacted your world, Jason? Thank you, Greg. I just want to say first that um, we're very grateful for you and your work that you've done. We're very sorry for your loss that you incurred due to this epidemic, and uh, we hope that our work together will prevent others from having to go through that same horrific incident. Thank Um, you. it's, It's my pleasure. I am a person in long-term recovery, Greg, and, and what that means is that I've, I've, got, I've been through the issues that we're talking about. I've lived it. I've, I've been in active addiction for the better part of two decades, and uh, it has impacted me and my community and my family uh, and un, unquantifiably. Uh, we really can't put a number or uh, uh, we really can't describe the, the issues and the horrors that have come from active addiction in my world. How long have you been in recovery, Jason? I, I've been without drugs and alcohol for s- almost eight years. It'll be eight years on April 16th. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. I spent 13 months and one day at a recovery Kentucky center very close to here called the Grateful Life Center. Uh, and that I, I mentioned that 13 months and one day is very important because that was not the 28-day program. That was not the 90-day program. That was not a time determined by a, uh, a funding provider. source or an insurance provider. That was a time determined by me. 
me and, and the, the people working closely with me. That, that was the time I needed to develop a foundation of recovery. That was the time I needed to learn about this disease and how it was affecting me and my life. And uh, I, that, was the, that was the exact appropriate amount of time for me to get what I needed in order to sustain long-term recovery. Uh, it, it was, well, I could have stayed there for up to two years. Uh, 13 months in one day was was the magic number. I I reached a point in my recovery where uh, I was I was stable. I had stable housing. I was in school working on a bachelor's degree. I had gotten my GED. Uh, I um, and, and it was just it was time. I I found a place where I could live that was safe, uh, that was outside of the facility, and and myself along with the director and the many uh, counselors that were employed there at the time. And my my friends in recovery all came together, and we decided that that was in you know it was time it was a good time for me to 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 move out to to move out on on my own. Wow! Um, and I didn't go far, I'll tell you, because I, that the very next day after I moved out of the center, I started working there part time. Um, so I came back as a residential monitor on the weekends while I was in school. I worked my way through a bachelor's degree at Northern Kentucky University. Uh, and then uh, a master's degree after that, and, and that brings us to the current day. What was your drug of choice? I was involved in a, a marijuana operation out in Northern California, so I grew mass quantities of marijuana. But that included um, packing and distributing those, that, my product through areas in Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, Salt Lake City, Utah, all the way down to San Diego and, and Houston. A lot of them went to Houston, Texas. So You were I, in a big operation. I was in a pretty big operation. And um, along with that came, it, it was the drug of the, of the day in the area that I was in. You know, And I can tell you in Portland, there's a lot of heroin. And you, they would complement heroin with crack. So it would be uh, heroin maybe all night and crack all day. Or if you had to rest, you would get off crack and you would start, start shooting or smoking heroin. Uh, if you had to go to work or whatever, you'd try to maintain some sense of normalcy by applying the stimulant to your bloodstream and, and then trying to function throughout the day on the So stimulant. that's what you used? That's what I used. And to stay rolling, heroin, crack? Methamphetamine. Uh, I was in a very rural area of Northern California, mm -hmm. so these other drugs weren't readily available in in that region, in uh, up north of San Francisco, about 100 miles, Mendocino County. Uh, it was a lot of methamphetamine. It came. Some of it came from Mexico. Some of it was manufactured right there in in uh, in those counties, in North, in the Emerald Triangle, so to speak, wow. in Northern California. But uh, it was it was that was the drug of that region, methamphetamine. You know, um, Houston was a different area, and Salt Lake City was powdered cocaine, and San Diego was. Uh, a lot of meth, a lot of heroin. Hmm. Uh, so it just depends on where I was at, right? So in this region, how has the opioid epidemic impacted you? The opioid epidemic, you know, these are our people. These are our, our, our friends, our neighbors, our community members. Uh, these are our employees. These are our employers sometimes. Um, these, are, these are people that are part, an integral part of our community. And um, when it becomes a, an epidemic scale of, of, of destruction, uh, it, imp it impacts everybody. Uh, not just me, our, our, our correctional systems are strained, are overpopulated, our, our medical systems are just at wit's end trying to deal with the, the increased overdoses, the increased the EMS, increased calls. 
our, our law enforcement personnel are, are, are maxed out constantly, day after day, dealing with the detrimental effects of injection drug use, heroin use, other, other substances that come along with it, all the dysfunction that comes along with it. Um, so there's really not a, a, an aspect of life in this region that is not impacted by that. And we're all paying for it. Every tax dollar that we contribute, it goes towards um, unpaid medical bills, goes towards increased budgets for law enforcement, for, um, for our hospitals, for our correctional facilities. So if you think for a minute that you're not being impacted or I have those, those people and it's not me, well, you're, you're, you're grossly mistaken because you're, you are paying for it. And, and it's, you're paying for the lost wages. You're paying for the retraining of individuals and small businesses. You're paying for the lost merchandise from shoplifting. I mean, this, this all comes full circle and it comes right out of everyone's pocket eventually. So in your personal life, from your personal experiences, as well as what you witnessed in your community, you took all of that and you, along with others here in the correctional institution, decided to make a difference, and you uh, developed an addiction services program that uh, Sam Quinones, in his book and in talking with him, describes it as really being potentially a game changer for how we address this when it comes to addressing addiction in a you know, detention center. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about how you got started with this. I was approached by the county, uh, Mr. Terry Carl, who's our jailer, who really led this project, who, who had the, the vision and the open-mindedness to, to see this, this issue from a different angle. Um, someone who's been in law enforcement, someone who's been in the correctional environment for, for his entire life from this community. Um, so the, I, I came on board in July of fifteen. And uh, we very quickly went into research development mode. I, I began touring facilities uh, in the state and, and out of the state. I began doing as much research as I possibly could, trying to find find out what worked and, and or if there was a lot, if there was no a lot of times there was just no evidence on on what was the best way to approach this situation. But a lot of people were doing a lot of good work, and so we kind of uh, cherry picked the successes that we found and. Um, we came up with this, uh, and it's a it's a pretty common term these days, a biopsychosocial, uh, spiritual approach to substance use disorder, and and uh, biologically we treat a a disease, a disorder with a medication that's proven to reduce relapse, that reduces cravings for those that are suffering. We uh, and psychologically we we address the behaviors and um, the actions of those by evidence based cognitive behavioral therapy approach. Socially, uh, we're dealing with people that are, are, have been trying to buck the system since day one. They, uh, their, their social skills are seriously lacking, so we in, incorporate social support networks in the form of 12-step support meetings. We talk about the uh, social norms and, and how, to, uh, how to play nice with others. You, know, you want to be able to get out there and you want to be able to get a job and you want to be able to function in society and be a productive member. Uh, you have to have to incorporate these skills into your life. So uh, the social component is very important. Uh, we also encourage a, a spirituality uh, a contact with a, a, some kind of a, a higher power uh, that you may develop faith in. Whether that higher power be the group that you're working with or uh, some sort of deity, that choice is yours. It's up to you to to nurture and, and foster that relationship. But um, through this biopsychosocial spiritual model of treatment, We've, we've begun to see some very encouraging results. Outstanding. So um, 
Let's walk through how the program works. So somebody hits your door. Take us from there. Well, uh, in any given day, we've got about 650 to 700 individuals here at the detention center. And at the point of booking, I will uh, I, our, our booking officers will ask a couple questions regarding substance use. And um, one of them being, is your charge directly or indirectly related to, uh, to drug or alcohol use? And 83% respond affirmative on that, they, that they are uh, robbing and stealing or, or, or whatever the case may be to, to feed a habit or to manage a disorder. 83% of the people that pass through the doors here at the correctional facility are somehow associated with addiction, Yeah, it, opioid addiction. For the most part, yep, wow. and it, it's straining. I mean, like like we said, it's yeah, it's straining every system known to man. And so, of those eighty three percent, we we asked the second question: If treatment were made available to you here at the jail, would you take advantage of it? And half of them say, yeah, that they would. That's what that's the demand right mm-hmm. now for mm-hmm. for the facility. Now, most places couldn't. Most treatment places uh, facilities probably couldn't keep up with that. Probably not. Yeah. Probably not. Um, but that was our guiding principle. That was our guiding uh, sort of number that we were going to, because we were trying to decide how many beds, right? We've got beds. We've got that we're housing people. We're feeding people. We're, you know, they're here. Why not just plug in a treatment program? It, sure. it makes sense. How many finan- beds do you have? Financially. So uh, with the laws of supply and demand, unfortunately, we didn't just open a 200-bed center. We, we, we decided that 100 beds is where we would start. After that, we quickly got our license together. We were certified by the Cabinet for Health and Family Service as an alcohol and other drug entity, licensed by the state of Kentucky to operate as a residential drug treatment program and for 100. And, uh, you know, demand has continuously grown. Uh, we, we, we're, like I said, we're always full. So let's talk about um, then the steps. Let's go a little bit further into the steps that uh, the three phases, did you call them, that you take everyone yeah. through? Yeah. We decided our program would best be suited in three phases. Um, so for the, for the county program, the 90-day program, the they're a, a one month each. Uh, the first phase is orientation. The second phase is treatment. And the third phase is release reintegration. Uh, in the first phase, we cover the modules intake and orientation. And we also cover criminal and addictive thinking. Second phase, treatment, we cover drug and alcohol education and socialization. Third phase, we cover relapse prevention and release reintegration. Those are the actual titles of the books that we cover. Okay. Excellent. You know, there's, there's a few other elements to the, to the, to the nuts and bolts of what happened, what happens in the, you know, a day in the life, so to speak of the mm-hmm. men and women in our program. Mm-hmm. I'd like to talk about if it's okay. Please. Uh, we, we are, we always want to have a, 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 a bridge those gaps between incarceration and community being out in the community. And, and uh, so we ask social support systems, networks, 12-step networks to come in. We have volunteers that come in uh, a couple times a week for both programs. And they, they're, they're outside individuals that are in recovery, that they, they volunteer their time, they come in, they, they give their phone numbers to these men and women. So when they, 
not only do they understand our, our clients understand how to chair a meeting, what it means to be a part of a 12 step meeting or a 12 step fellowship, but they've also got those phone numbers when they get out, they can instantly call these people and say, Hey, I need a meeting. You remember me? I was in Kitten County. They've uh, got that connection. They've got a connection. And that's, they've, that's gotta be huge. It, it is huge. Yeah. It, it's, it's an instant social support system as the minute they walk out that door. All they've got to do is pick up that phone and make the call. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you also send them out the door with their Mac pack. Yeah. Let's yeah. Talk briefly about that. Yeah. So we decided that we would apply for a grant and, um, we, we did so and received some funding and, and we honored a, a, a local advocate who was the CEO of a local treatment treatment center, treatment agency here in Northern Kentucky, Mac MacArthur. And, and we honored him by naming our uh, indigent backpacks, uh, our homeless supply kits, so to speak, by uh, uh, enduring the term, endearing term, uh, Mac packs for Mac mm-hmm. MacArthur. And uh, they contain per- non-perishable food items, toiletries, uh, poncho, emergency blanket, soap, uh, female hygiene, uh, if appropriate, and and uh, and it just gives someone that this, everything that they would need to make it on the street for a night, uh, maybe two, and, and and help hopefully get them to a, a safe place. Hopefully get them to somewhere where they're where they're stable and uh, have a have some resources without having to engage in that criminal behavior again, without having to go back to drug use to try to escape or. Or try to you know cope with with what's happening around them. Terrific, compassionate program, really compassionate, and definitely understanding absolutely every step of the way what um, these people are going through. Yeah, thank so, you. Now let's talk a little bit about that point system you mentioned. Yeah, our our aftercare program mm-hmm. is a client centered treatment, um, and it's used throughout the the Department of Corrections systems throughout every state program and, and county program um, in, in the state of Kentucky. And, and it's, a, it's basically a point system. And when you, we go over a, a list of items that, um, that are helpful in you, for you, that may be helpful to you in your recovery, uh, somewhere along that list you're going to find things that you can, you can relate to that are going to be beneficial to you, your family, and, and your life. And uh, it's up to you to decide what you want to do. Uh, but your aftercare program is required. It's required by the by your probation or parole officer. Um, so you pick the items on that list. You got to get forty points a month. So but you review how they're doing. We, how many points do we have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we look at their point system, and that's generally tracked through probation and parole. You get your you report to your probation uh, probation officer a lot more than you report to us. So. Um, you measure this very closely. You you report. You put out a comprehensive report uh, uh, for every fiscal year um, for the program. I guess one fiscal year really has been completed for the program, the mm-hmm. 2015 year. Um, and and you've got the some highlights documented there. Um, which of those would you like to share? So this study is is done through University of Kentucky. Uh, it's contracted by the Department of Corrections. And um, I think one of the most encouraging numbers that you see on here is that 70% of our clients who complete are, are not incarcerated. Uh, mm. That's pretty huge. When typically we see a 70% recidivism rate for those that don't engage in treatment, you know, 83% of our participants agree that they feel better about themselves as a result of treatment and consider the program to be successful. That's pretty huge. Yeah. That is, that's, that's enormous. Um, another one that I'm pretty fond of is the uh, employment. You know, we want to get people back out on their feet, and a big part of 
of uh, my personal recovery, and I know for a lot of people like me, is finding purpose in life, finding something that you're good at, something that has value. Uh, and a lot of a lot of times that comes through a, a job that you like, and, and so finding that that job where you where you're valued and you helps build your self esteem is crucial. Sixty eight point one percent of our clients that complete are employed at least part time. If you want to look at the dollars and cents for every dollar we spend on programs like ours, you get a four dollar and twenty nine cent cost offset. Now. That means that we've got for we spend one dollar here, we've got four dollars and twenty nine cents we can spend somewhere else. That that's roads, that's pension funds, that's schools, that's I mean that that saves eventually we're talking, you know, that's real money. Real money. Yeah. That's really yeah. helping other areas immensely. Mm-hmm. Um so it just makes sense. It makes so much sense. And, and whatever whatever arena you're coming from, if you're not worried, if you're one of those that say, Oh, those people they deserve what they got then right here, and you're worried more about the money, then we got it. We got you covered. There We're saving you money. Yeah. If you're worried about the people and you don't care about the money, then you know that this makes sense. These people are staying out of jail. They're working. They're contributing to our societies. You know, and if you're, if it, it doesn't matter where you're standing or where you're coming from, treatment in jails and prisons makes sense. So all of these groups are out there doing uh, great work in each of their communities, in each of their counties, but yet you've been able to put kind of an umbrella over that with a group that gathers monthly and talks about issues, and you've identified those as your pillars, I believe, and you move forward with those. So let's talk a little bit about that. It was a product of need, right? A product of necessity, unfortunately, in order to really make a dent in the in the epidemic it was in everyone's best interest to collaborate, to meet, to, to function as, a, as, as one. And uh, we do that through what we call the Heroin Impact Response Task Force. And that is what identifies the six pillars of our intervention for the region. They are harm reduction, treatment, prevention, support, uh, prote- uh, protection, and supply reduction. Acting collaboratively attracts attention from funders. They always want to see those partnerships. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's no secret that social services, these types of of providers are starving for funding to expand to meet the need. And when we come, when we bring, everyone comes to the table, we've got a much greater chance of providing, of helping, hoping, hoping and helping to get that that essential, those essential dollars needed to, to, to for our capacity to, to meet the demand yeah. in our communities. When did you start this? 2013. 2013. Oh, yeah. so you've been at it for quite a while. Yes. Okay. And how long did it take to get your first draft of your first document out, out the door there? Nine to 12 months. I think within the first year we had it out. We had it published, printed. And so what would you say would be the most notable accomplishments of that that group well with our uh, one of my committees that i'm involved in is is protection or harm reduction Uh, so in 2013 we helped to pass legislation that allows for narcan or naloxone a more common generic term for it to be uh, accessible to community members uh, broader accessibility to law enforcement to for schools to allow it in their in their facilities Uh, so that was a big win right off the bat then we went to work 
we, we got funding to purchase naloxone and distribute it to our high-risk populations. Uh, we began down in Falmouth, which is in Pendleton County, Kentucky, not very far from here, uh, with, a, with a, a naloxone education training clinic, uh, giving out free kits. Uh, since then, we've provided uh, up to four naloxone kits for every police officer in northern Kentucky in the eight counties. That's over 1,000 officers. We've provided sharps-resistant search gloves for those officers, 1,000 officers in this, in this region. So that's, that's uh, the protection or the harm reduction component. Oh, we also passed legislation to allow needle exchange in Kentucky, which was, a, was pretty huge. Before we move yeah. on on that, I just here's an edgy harm reduction piece that in some parts of the country they're pushing for yeah. it. And um, it's, uh, it's getting some play in New York mm-hmm. and Seattle in particular, King County. A safe injection. Exactly. So, you yeah. knew where I was going with yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I brought it up a couple of times at our, at our monthly meetings. So th- these are spots that provide a safe place with sterile injection supplies for someone to use illicit substances. Uh, they prevent overdose. They prevent the spread of infectious disease, bloodborne pathogens. You know, they also kind of they sterilize the whole action of drug use. So it... it no longer has that sort of glorified appeal to many people. So I think in a lot of ways, it's a preventative measure as well. Other countries around the world, they're actually providing a pharmaceutical grade, pure heroin as well. Uh, also, kids, young people see it as well. If the government's doing it, I don't want to have anything to do, any part of it. So they're actually seeing a decrease in drug use. Wow. Portugal, for, for example, they're seeing a mm-hmm. decrease in drug use. Uh, they've legalized uh, everything but trafficking, uh, so all illicit substances are are legal to have and to use. Um, and and what they've seen is a dramatic decrease in substance in cases of overdose, in cases of disorder, in cases of uh, of of course crime has yeah. gone down immensely. And all the money that they're saving on in the criminal justice system, they put into the treatment system. So. Mm-hmm. Instead of being a prison, now it's a treatment facility, and yeah. people can go there and get the help that they need and deserve. Um, so when you talked to Sam the, a year and a half or so, two years ago, um, what's changed since then in your world? Uh, well, we've you know we 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 started our our program, and and uh, a lot of what we do here is a direct result of of the awareness and the the the, the wave of the momentum that was created by Dreamland. Um, this was very much kind of a, uh, you know, a, a in private conversation before before that book came out, before uh, several other articles that were that were published by various journalists around the, the country came out. So this was very much a hush hush issue for a very long time, and that 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 silence killed a lot of people. Uh, so what we're seeing is we're we're approaching a tipping point. We're reaching a point where the momentum, the awareness, the advocacy that as as a result of Dreamland and and has created a movement that will provide enough treatment, funding, harm reduction to make it so more people are living in in recovery than are suffering in the disorder. Uh, so that's, that's my goal. That's what I want to see. I want to, I want to see there be more people saying, I'm Jason, I am a person in long-term recovery. And for, and for me, that means it's been this many years since I've 
used drugs or alcohol. Um, when that happens, I think that we've that we've definitely done our job. We've done our due diligence for our community, um, and that's it. Is that we're getting there? We're getting there. It's not an easy process. It's a very complex issue with equally complex solutions, um, and it, it. But it starts. You know, it starts with our. It starts and ends with our people. We've got to put people first. Uh, and I'm kind of dovetailing here, but I think it's important to mention that the stigma, the discrimination that's all too often associated with substance use disorder, it kills people. And when people, when someone feels stigmatized, they'll isolate, they'll be full of shame, and they'll continue to use, and they'll continue to be dishonest until it, it kills them. Um, so the more the more we can talk about it, the more we can you know do stuff like this and and people like Sam, great people can put out amazing articles and and books on on the issue and uh, really capture the truth and and dispel the myths um, the better we're gonna be as a society uh, the the better we're gonna be as as a as a community and as an individual. Um, and when I say put people first, I mean that literally, you know, you call someone an addict, that is a stigmatizing message. Uh, it, it's a person that suffers from addiction. Uh, it's a person that has a substance use disorder. You know, we don't call someone a cancer. Mm. Yeah. You know, we don't say, Hey, you're a cancer. Yeah. You're a person with cancer. Mm. You're a person first. Mm. That's what defines you, not your disease. Point. And it's that simple shift in our vocabulary that can mean the world to people that are out there suffering. Outstanding. Well, Jason, I really want to thank you for your time today. Um, what final thoughts would you have for our listeners? Um, you know, it, it's it's a constant struggle to uh, to make a difference in this in this uh, in this issue. So I would say. Make decisions that support people in recovery. Uh, Sometimes some some of the people that you'll find, whether you're a small business owner or maybe you're a manager or you're a staff member at a local business, uh, support someone looking for a job that's in recovery. Support somebody that you know instead of casting that doubt or uh, or or that that discrimination, uh, you'll find that people that are in long-term recovery will be your best worker. You know they will outwork everybody. They'll, they have a level of gratitude that you, you, it's rare to find. You know, these are people that have been to the depths, that have almost lost everything, including their life, and have now risen from the ashes, and they want to be a good person. They want to do good things in the community. So what they need is an opportunity. They need a chance. So despite what their, whatever their convictions may have been or whatever their history may have been keep that in mind if if you're approached by someone who checks that box that yes i'm a felon or that yes i have a you know i have a problem i had a problem with drugs and alcohol and i'm in recovery now um look past that and and give them that opportunity support legislation that that funds programs that support politicians that make decisions to support recovery um very important uh, your local legislation, I mean, that's that's where it starts. Uh, you got to find leaders in your community that understand the issue. 
and, and uh, are willing to educate themselves and listen to their constituents. So um, find find out who your who your senator is. Find out who your representative is in your in your region. Make that phone call. Call them up and meet with them. They they work for you. So so they'll do what you want them to do. You are the person that voted for them. You are you are their employer, so so to speak. So uh, get to know them. Um, it, sometimes it's confusing, and I think sometimes it's confusing on purpose. But it's not it's not impossible to figure out figure out how to get in touch and who your who your legislators are. So at whatever level, at local or state or nationally, just just reach out and and. Take part, do something, you know, find out what speaks to you and, and do a little research and, and do what your heart says is right. You know, that's that's the key. Uh, we can all make a difference and we all don't have to do everything, we, but we can do something. We can do one thing and that'll make a, a huge impact. We certainly can all make a difference and you certainly have made a big difference. Well, so thank, thank you. you. We've been visiting today with Jason Merrick, who's the Director of Addiction Services at the Kenton County Detention Center excuse me, in Covington, Kentucky. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this special podcast on After Dreamland. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.